How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. Welcome to Climate One, a conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. To understand any of them, you have to understand them all. I'm Greg Dalton. Today we'll peek inside America's largest company, ExxonMobil. In the new book, Private Empire, ExxonMobil and American Power, author Steve Cole pulls back the curtain on the secretive and highly disciplined company to chronicle how it exerts influence on governments and creates wealth for shareholders. He also details the company's campaign to cast doubt on the scientific fact that heat-trapping gases are destabilizing the Earth's climate. Over the next hour, we'll discuss the petroleum powerhouse with Steve Cole and our live audience here at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco. Steve Cole has won two Pulitzer Prizes, one for Ghost Wars, a book on Afghanistan from the Soviet occupation to 9-11, and an earlier one for news coverage of the Securities and Exchange Commission. He's a former managing editor of the Washington Post and is currently president of the New America Foundation, a Washington think tank, and in his spare time as a staff writer at the New Yorker magazine. Please welcome Steve Cole. Welcome, Steve. Thanks, Greg. Thanks for having me. Um, so you write about ExxonMobil as an independent sovereign. What does that mean? What does that scope of power mean for a corporation? Well, you start with the numbers. Uh, last year, their revenue was north of $450 billion. Uh, for some of you who might uh, work over at Chevron, uh, which is the third largest corporation uh, in the Fortune 500 list, uh, that's twice as large of the, as the revenue of Chevron. So the gap between the largest and the third largest is an order of magnitude. $450 billion is, is larger than the um, size of the economy of most of the world's countries. It's about the size of Norway's economy, to provide one kind of indication. But I think more uh, of more interest in a sort of geopolitical sense we, we live in an age of multinational corporations. We live in an age when the power of states is declining, the power of corporations and other non-governmental groups, including terrorist networks and non-governmental environmental campaigners, is rising as a, in a relative way. And in the sphere of corporations, multinationals like ExxonMobil, with that scale of uh, finance and uh, influence, have become increasingly untethered from their own national settings and truly are global entities, uh, see themselves that way. When I first started thinking about them, looking at them, I thought they look like a country to me. And I was surprised a little bit to discover, yeah, that's kind of how they see themselves. <laughs> they, they do very much organize themselves around a series of independent economic, foreign, and security policies. They see themselves as sovereign. Their constituents are their shareholders. Their framework is the rule of law. And they, I came to think of them as sort of like France in relation to the United States in the sense that, you know, in a political sense, they're more often aligned than not, but sometimes they're quite opposed. And generally, they just try to stay out of America's way. Uh, they have their own global system to attend to. Um, Did and, you tell you anyone know, in Texas you think about them like as French? France? I mean, yeah. yeah, no, I haven't. Uh, that, them's fighting words. They don't mind being... Um, Compared to, say, the New York Yankees or the Dallas Cowboys, kind of yeah, an evil <laughs> empire, that, that they're comfortable with. But you know, France would probably be an insult. Um, and the head of this country, you say he ruled as an emir, was Lee Raymond, uh, who really shaped the company as we know it today. So paint a picture of Lee Raymond as the head of ExxonMobil. Right. So I, I wanted to write about the modern corporation, and that really meant two things. The corporation that was remade after the Valdez spill, which Lee Raymond uh, essentially was responsible for those reforms, and then also the corporation that swelled in size through the mobile merger in 1999-2000. So Lee Raymond uh, became the chairman and chief executive in 1993, served until the end of 2005. His nickname at the company was Iron Ass, and uh, that was saying something at a corporation where the corporate culture was especially closed and severe and where many of the leading executives were military veterans and who brought to bear a kind of Marine Corps attitude. 
Among the other distinctive features, among the many distinctive features of ExxonMobil's corporate culture is its closed insular character. This is one of the last intact cradle-to-grave social contract uh, lifetime employment companies and in the country. And all of its executives rise up together in a cohort. They come in out of college or graduate school. There's a sort of up and up or out moment around six, seven years in. And if you're up, you're willing to move every three years and willing to shift around and to adapt to a very rule-bound, very rigid company, you, you can rise to the very top. If you looked at most corporations in this country and you mapped, say, the top 30 or 40 jobs, you'd normally find people who moved laterally in from another competing company or from another industry. They brought in fresh ideas, some reforming spirit. At ExxonMobil, that doesn't happen. It's much more like the Marine Corps. You don't become a a two-star Marine Corps general because you had a successful career at IBM and decided to go wear two stars. And that's kind of the attitude at, at ExxonMobil. You don't transfer from the Navy, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, one of the interesting points you talk about, Lee Raymond, was and he called up one of his executives when he was in the hospital. Tell that story. Uh, so, yeah. So one of his uh, goals after the Exxon Valdez was to um, basically automate uh, every aspect of ExxonMobil's daily performance um, it's certainly its operations and safety performance, also its financial performance and its administrative performance, to wring out to the highest possible extent human fallibility from ExxonMobil's daily uh, experience. Because what the Exxon Valdez accident exposed was systematic failure and also a high degree of, of human failure. And so he built the system um, and basically pressed everyone to reduce uh, accidents and hours lost to um, safety issues to zero, and or as close to zero as they could humanly get. Held people accountable, fired, yelled, coerced, attached performance raises and, and other incentives to this, and also formed these almost Soviet sort of worker groups where there was a collective sense of responsibility for safety performance. If we were at ExxonMobil, we would have already taken a safety minute. Uh, we would have pointed out where the exits are, and I would have come up with something original to say about how to uh, evacuate in the case of an emergency. And these worker groups had to start every meeting with a safety minute, even if they had five meetings a week with the same people. And some of the managers I took to said, they're actually, their greatest source of anxiety was coming up with something fresh to say as they were driving <laughs> into work. Um, and there was a kind of 12-step aspect to it. You would stand up and talk about near misses that you'd had both on the job and at home. So people would talk about getting too much sunburn on vacation. They would talk about uh, operating their lawnmower improperly and having a rock come out and strike them in the leg. Um, you could be, you, you would receive a written reprimand if you left a file drawer open because somebody might bump into it. If there was a rash of paper cuts around the copier, uh, this would be noted and investigated. And so in this context, there was a man named Frank Sproul who was running the safety department for Lee Raymond. And secretly, he was a danger junkie. He was like a speed uh, racer. He drove like on a motor, he drove motorcycles in competitive races. He bought sports cars and went out to the racetrack and ran them around at 170 miles an hour. He went big game hunting in Africa for rhinos and, and, uh, and, and he was just uh, devoted to risk-taking on the weekend, even though he was running the system in which the, all of these expectations were built into the company. And he had this uh, accident uh, while racing a bicycle. I guess Raymond had some idea of what he was doing on his own time. And he, Raymond called him in the hospital and basically said, you might think I'm calling you to wish you a speedy recovery from your broken bones. I'm actually calling to tell you that if you are ever in the hospital again, it'll be your last day at ExxonMobil. <laughs> so, um, anyway, he was a tough uh, manager who um, did not suffer fools gladly and um, was a source of, you know, real intimidation and, and um, uh, even some uh, resentment among his colleagues. I don't think he was very well aware of the effect he had on people, but uh, he did do something that, you know, in this world is pretty hard to do. He took a corporation that had a certain way of working, was very bureaucratic, was very set in its ways, and he changed it um, profoundly. And one area of influence, I want to go to uh, 2001, early in the Bush administration, there were some briefings starting to happen about climate change within the new Bush administration. And you write that Colin Powell, Secretary of uh, or he was maybe in a different position then, uh, Don Evans, were open to the idea of, of climate change. And 
tell us a story there in terms of how Exxon Im- influenced that early phases of the Bush administration. Well, the the um, key relationship was between Lee Raymond and Vice President Dick Cheney. Um, Cheney, of course, had been the chief executive of Halliburton during the 1990s, but and Halliburton is, a, of course, a contracting um, company that collaborates with ExxonMobil and other super major oil companies. But more than the business relationship, uh, Raymond and Cheney were close personal friends. They were neighbors in Dallas, in Highland Park. Their wives uh, became friends. They went hunting together. They were similar men. Both had grown up in the Midwest. Uh, they both had kind of a, a sort of a hard view of uh, oil and the world and, and the realities of the world as they would see it. And uh, so when Cheney became vice president, um, the, ch- the chairman and chief executive of ExxonMobil had a very distinctive personal line of communication that was rooted in many years of friendship. And so um, in that respect, he and Cheney had a like-minded view of global warming and efforts to um, ameliorate it through the Kyoto Accords or by any other means, whether it was investing in science, um, research, which was perhaps the easiest uh, path for the Bush administration to take because was just budgetary expenditure. It didn't require um, them to impose costs on oil companies or the economy. And so there were a series of briefings. There was a kind of a study group in the first six months that ran in parallel to the Energy Policy Task Force, about which more was known at the time. And this study group was basically a cabinet-level uh, briefing shop where um, the White House invited scientists from NOAA, the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration, and other uh, federal departments to basically explain the threat of global warming to the new Bush cabinet. And uh, James Hansen was among those who came in and briefed, and they, they basically put up all kinds of uh, uh, slides and photographs and forecasts, and they talked about real estate in Miami. They, they, the scientists who did the briefing kept thinking, what will get to these guys? I know, condos underwater. And then they would put up something about the threats to the Florida coast. And uh, there was a kind of a – it wasn't clear where this was going in terms of policy, but Cheney, uh, there's a, one of the scientists who was briefing, was sitting next to him watching as, as Hansen talked uh, and talked about rising seas and various other potential outcomes. And he watched Cheney just in that way that's often been described uh, by Cheney's biographers. There's a very good Bart Gelman book um, called Angler that has a little sense of the way he, he stayed silent but he had this kind of shifting body language that would signal when he was really unhappy. And the scientists could see that he was really unhappy. He stood up, started pacing around, and, and he just sort of thought, this is bad. He is really going to shut this down. And in fact, uh, within a matter of days, uh, this whole thing was unplugged. All the scientists were told to pack up, go back to their departments, and uh, um, a whole series of hasty, preemptive decisions were made that left the Bush administration essentially without a meaningful climate policy other than some science uh, funding. But do you say that that was ExxonMobil or that's more Dick Cheney? There was more an alignment of interest rather than cause and effect. Yeah, yeah, I, I would be inclined toward that view. I mean, he and Raymond had been talking about these issues through the whole 1990s. I mean, the, in the, at the time of the Kyoto Accords, Raymond was the chairman and chief executive of ExxonMobil, making speeches at the World Petroleum Forum in Beijing, urging China to vote against the Kyoto Accords, and uh, meanwhile, his, you know, his, one of his closest friends in Dallas was, was Cheney. So they, they had shared this conversation, the whole complex of perceptions and, and beliefs around their rejection, both of the science and of the bargain that Kyoto represented. And on the science, uh, the company engaged in a disinformation or a campaign to cloud the science. And, and talk about that campaign to question, introduce doubt into the science of climate change. Yeah, so a series of investigations have brought out a pretty rich body of evidence about what this campaign really amounted to. And I think it's important to set one frame of context, which is that, you know, the Kyoto Accords were quite unpopular in the United States when they were enacted. In fact, there was a like 97 or 93 to nothing vote in the United States Senate telling President Clinton don't even bother to send these over for ratification. But they were mostly unpopular in industrial America and across um, the Congress on fairness grounds and on the grounds that the economic uh, burdens that would be imposed on the United States by Kyoto didn't warrant uh, paying. But there were very few corporations that did what ExxonMobil did, which was to take an aggressive and often surreptitious uh, campaign, uh, put it into motion, partly through the American Petroleum Institute, the trade group, but partly on its own dime, 
um, to basically uh, develop, support, fund, often uniquely fund uh, campaign uh, organizations, communications organizations, free market groups, sometimes purpose-built, um, to attack the credibility of the science itself. That, that was what was really distinctive about their role in the, in the effort to undermine Kyoto. And they had the checkbook uh, to undertake that campaign in a much more effective way than any other entity, and they did it. And often they didn't declare their positions. It was really only when environmental investiga- environmentalist investigators, uh, science organizations, and others began to unearth tax documents and, and other disclosures that, that the extent of this kind of purpose-built campaign uh, was, was exposed. Um, was it effective? I think so. I mean, you look at public opinion about climate science today, and uh, you can see that there is a great deal more skepticism relative to scientific consensus about this issue than virtually any other scientific issue that has public policy implications that I can think about. It's just that ratio. The scientists are, you know, 97% in one place, and the public is 40% in that place. Now, about smoking's dangers, um, there's no such gap. About many other scientific issues that create controversial public policy decisions, how much should we tax ourselves to address this problem, how serious is the problem, you you don't see those kinds of gaps. And I, I, I do think that the campaign was unfortunately um, effective. And at the same time, people inside the company were seeking to understand how the company might gain an advantage in a, in a warming world. Yeah, one of the former scientists that I interviewed um, said, look, don't believe they didn't think this was real. It was our assignment to discover how a warming pl- planet would free up um, oil and gas resources and maybe to get ahead of that so that we could... Um, seize those opportunities before others perceive them. And look, the simplest example is in the news right now, which is this enormous uh, agreement that ExxonMobil has made with Rosneft, the Russian oil company, to develop uh, oil and gas above the Arctic Circle. Now, why is that deal possible? It's because Arctic sea ice has been retreating at a very alarming rate, and it, and it is that softening of the ice cap uh, north of the Arctic Circle that has freed up all of this ambition. So um, it would be, um, you know, a sad irony if ExxonMobil's shareholders ended up connected through 20 years of dividends to the exploitation of oil north of the Arctic Circle that was partially made possible by the pollution of public understanding of the dangers of global warming. And one of the things you write about is a University of Wisconsin sociologist who got a call one day from an ExxonMobil person as part of a legal strategy. Tell us that. Well, there's a, yeah, he was, a, I think, a sociologist, yeah, and, and he um, had studied the question as an academic of how exactly do corporate influence campaigns work. And you get glimpses of them in the documents. There's a, a document mm-hmm. called Informed Influentials that I made some use of that showed how ExxonMobil conceived of its target audiences and how they would seek to reach them and and what success looked like. They thought very deeply about these subjects. These are obviously very smart people, and they're and they have a lot of time to focus on hard problems like how you affect um, elite opinion in in westernized democracies. But this sociologist, from an academic uh, perspective, was interested in the same question. So he had written about this to some extent, and he'd also written a little bit about. Um, the value of punitive damages in a democracy, how to think about punitive damages in juries. And so he got a call. He'd written something that I, about punitive damages, I guess, that had attracted ExxonMobil's attention. And uh, they called him and basically said, you know, you're thinking about this as the kind of thing we would support if you were interested in bringing forward some academic journal articles. Maybe we could work together. And the sociologist sort of described thinking, well, Rather than actually collaborate with uh, this proposal, why don't I actually just document what it is they plan to do? <laughs> and so he instantly turned this call into a, a kind of uh, sociological experiment. And, and, he, and he followed the thread all the way through a series of conversations. I think he actually even traveled down to Irving to meet with uh, some of the executives who had contacted him. And then um, at the end, uh, when he published his experience in a journal of sociology, uh, you know, called a lot of attention to this broader pattern of 
academic studies that ExxonMobil had used to challenge the validity of punitive damages in the case arising out of the Valdez that went all the way to the United States Supreme Court. And the, the final punctuation mark on the story is that when the United States Supreme Court ruled on the punitive damages issue in the Valdez, they actually went ExxonMobil's way, but uh, David Souter, uh, the former chief justice, uh, former justice, wrote in a footnote in reference to all of this pleadings that ExxonMobil had presented about punitive damages. He said, because these studies were funded by ExxonMobil, we declined to rely on them. So there's that footnote, but then there's the decision. And that, to me, sort of encapsulates some of the pattern of ExxonMobil's presence in our society. Yes, they are often um, contested and sometimes exposed, and even in some tactical or communication sense, they they can be defeated. But their their embeddedness and their persistence and their uh, resources are such that in the long run, they generally end up where they want to go. And they were thinking in this case about not a jury, but an actual uh, a review court judges who would look more favorably on this kind of uh, right. academic literature. Right. Thinking what, what influences a justice. If you're just joining us, our guest today at Climate One is Steve Cole, author of Private Empire, Exxon Mobil, and American Power. I'm Greg Dalton. So after Lee Raymond initiates this uh, disinformation campaign uh, clouding climate science, there's a change of leadership and a new CEO comes in, comes in and he takes a different track. Why? Well, um, by 2005, when Lee Raymond retired, uh, a series of uh, investigations by journalists, uh, scientists, environmental campaigners, uh, uh, Greenpeace, um, Union of Concerned Scientists, congressional investigators, had laid bare the, at least uh, a substantial body of evidence uh, about this campaign and had called a substantial amount of attention to it and had generated opposition among ExxonMobil shareholders, uh, corporate responsibility activists, um, the Rockefeller family, uh, the original uh, owners of Standard Oil from which ExxonMobil is descended. Every shareholder meeting was turning into a circus mm-hmm. in which Lee Raymond would have to defend his position against all kinds of skeptics and opposition. And, and many of these folks who are now questioning ExxonMobil's corporate citizenship in this respect were, uh, you know, from mainstream investment uh, firms, pension funds, and the like. And as this transition in the corporation's leadership took place, I think the board, looking at Raymond's successor, for a variety of reasons, said to itself, we need someone who can communicate better around these issues. Um, and Tillerson, uh, Rex Tillerson, who is the chairman and chief executive today and was ultimately selected as Raymond's successor, was identified as someone who could more effectively and uh, perhaps um, less provocatively communicate ExxonMobil's story to all kinds of audiences and uh, and perhaps uh, reset some of the corporation's reputation around climate. So when he came in, he undertook a review, basically, within the corporation to assess all of their activities and uh, to set a new course. And they did publicly announce that they were going to pull funding to some of the most provocative groups that they had been supporting in this campaign. And uh, at the same time, they were very worried about doing anything that would invite lawsuits or seem to imply liability uh, by the corporation for any damage that might have arisen from their activity or from global warming in general. So they were they were very, and they're often very much guided by in-house lawyers who have a very cautious and defensive kind of approach to these issues. And so they, they crafted this incredibly convoluted, frankly, incredibly convoluted campaign to communicate change. And they tested it out at little private gatherings with environmentalist activists. Anyone who they could get into a room, they'd run little focus groups and say, this is kind of where we're going on climate. And then they'd take notes as people reacted to that. The essence of the message at first was, we were never wrong. We were only misunderstood. And... That was that was like a perfect lawyer's line, right? So uh, we you know we are changing, but it's only because we were misunderstood, and so we don't have any liability issues since we never were wrong and we didn't do anything wrong, and and that um, kind of landed with a poof and didn't really make a big impression on people, uh, but it did. The the one thing that did uh, make some impression was their very visible changing of funding, pulling funding from controversial groups, um, and then. Later, they uh, changed in a more material way by coming out in support of a carbon tax in the United States the first time 
ExxonMobil had ever done such a thing. But that was four years later. Still. And, and, and around that time, there was a big debate. Climate comes to the forefront in Washington, D.C. A bill passes through the House, doesn't get through the Senate. Uh, what was Exxon's role in that cap-and-trade chapter? Right. So as I'm sure many of the folks here know, in order to address um, the risks and dangers of global warming, um, the objective of policymakers has been to impose a price on carbon-based fuels in order to create broadly-based economic incentives for consumers and companies to move away from high carbon fuels toward lower ones by essentially taxing the higher ones. But the system that was designed uh, to achieve that goal called cap and trade was a very specific form of trading of pollution credits among polluters that was modeled on a successful system that was used by George H.W. Bush to address, um, and others, uh, but was enacted in his presidency to address acid rain. And so the European Union had already established a uh, global warming-directed cap-and-trade system. It was still in its teething stages, but it was, it was the policy framework that was favored, and it was able to bring more corporations and more political actors to the table because it had a sort of flexibility that allowed people to trade off their choices um, a little bit. And so the, those who were interested in enacting climate legislation, which included some Republicans, John McCain at that time before he ran for president uh, and others, uh, built this very formidable lobbying coalition as almost pre-cooked it during the 2008 campaign cycle with the idea that when the next president came in, they would take this coalition that had been very carefully sort of put together and they would bring this cap-and-trade bill forward. Well, ExxonMobil during that time uh, sort of started to think, you know, this train is leaving the station, uh, but we're not on it. Uh, should we just continue to oppose any price on carbon uh, and continue to be vilified for this outlier position, or should we come to the table? And after a long period of review, they decided to support a price on carbon, but not to support the cap-and-trade regime, which, you know, to them is an offensively bureaucratic mess that hasn't proved itself and is just more government regulation. I mean, to give you an, uh, uh, just a sense of what their attitude towards the government is, this is the largest uh, institution of concentrated economic power outside of the state in the United States, right? It's the largest corporation in the United States. It's, a, it's an institution of immense concentrated power. Its chairman and chief executive, Rex Tillerson, was recently asked by Scouting Magazine, because he's very active in the Boy Scouts of America, um, what his favorite <coughs> book was. And he said it was Atlas Shrugged by Ayn Rand. Now, you know, a, a, a dystopian novel, a touchstone for libertarians. So here is the, the chief executive, essentially, of our state oil company. And that is at least some sense of his attitude towards the government. And you can imagine a cap-and-trade regime almost looks like a science fiction horror movie to, to a libertarian. <laughs> and and uh, so they did eventually bring themselves around to a tax, which they argued was a cleaner and more consistent and more effective way to achieve the same goal. And, you know, look, Al Gore favored a carbon tax at a certain time. It was just that when they came out with it in 2009, it was not the political negotiation that was actually underway. So they, on the one hand, they had won some public relations benefits by changing their position, and they are a consistent company. When they do something like this, they're not likely to reverse it, so they'll come back. When this subject comes back around, they'll be there. But on the other hand, they made themselves irrelevant. They invited, invited a lot of criticism that they were just doing this cynically to win PR, but they were secretly trying to undermine the bill. And you don't think that's the case? You don't think they were supporting Well, they were, they were lobbying against the bill. <laughs> they, they contributed to the bill's defeat in the Senate because they opposed the bill. They did not want to see a cap-and-trade regime come in. But I, I don't think that their record of conduct is such that you would that, – that the next time – if the United States developed the politics to enact something like a carbon tax, um, you know, would they – reverse their position and lobby against it because they now think climate science is, no, is not alarming anymore? That, no, I don't think that's likely to happen. I do think it's, it's of some significance, I don't know how to measure the significance, that the largest and most recalcitrant uh, oil corporation headquartered in the United States now says in public that the risks of global warming are so significant that even they agree a price on their own fuels is warranted to incent change. Now that, you know, that is, I think, at least one little uh, pebble 
in the rebuilding of some kind of national direction to address this, this issue. What are they doing on renewable or alternative energy? A lot of oil companies are investing in uh, biofuel companies in Silicon Valley or dabbling here and there as to, not to learn. They're not, not doing much. much. I mean, Lee Raymond used to say, we ought to emblazon on the granite in front of our headquarters the words crude oil. They were very. They, they remain in many ways proud that they are oil and gas purists. Oil in their veins. Oil in the, and they mocked BP uh, in the and BP drove them crazy with its successful marketing campaign, building a logo that had a yellow sun and little green trim, and building a solar power plant uh, 33 miles from Washington D.C., which happened to be within a day trip for members of Congress to see what BP was doing, as if. 98% of their revenue didn't come from oil and gas production. So, uh, you know, ExxonMobil said, well, at least we're not hypocrites. That was kind of their, their line. Uh, other times they'd be more generous, you know, more power to them. They'd, they'd pulled off a hard trick greening an oil company. But um, they didn't go down that, that path. And they, someone at BP, while I was doing this research, told me, you know, it was well in, he was a senior, in a senior position, should have been in a position to know. He said, it was well understood within BP that all this spending on alternative energy was in lieu of spending money on television ads trying to convince people of things they knew not to be true. So it was, it was a smarter marketing decision to spend $200 million on a solar power plant that you never expected to make money, but it was a real thing. It was a real investment. Members of Congress could see it. It was concrete. It wasn't like a TV campaign of scientists saying, yes, and we really are thinking about the world's future. And so... It was, it was just an alternative marketing strategy, in, in essence. Um, ExxonMobil eschewed that, and they also didn't see any investments that they actually believed in by their own management committee's you know, finance standards. The one exception they undertook was an investment in uh, algae as a potential um, uh, source of uh, biofuels. Their criteria has always been, at least their declared criteria is, we won't invest in anything that requires government subsidies to be competitive. We won't invest in anything that won't offer returns consistent with the returns we can make from oil and gas. And we won't invest in anything that doesn't scale to really the whole global system or at least the whole national system because we're not interested in small projects. We're too big to, to waste our time with small things. So algae sort of had the potential to meet all those criteria if you could engineer um, a form of algae that would generate biofuels that could blend with gasoline and replace uh, the kind of gasoline we use now in our entire national system. But apparently their early experiments haven't gone very well, and they seem to be backing down from the, that initial set of commitments. It's expensive to scale algae uh, biofuels. What disruptive technologies could threaten this enterprise? So it's very interesting. They ask themselves that question in a very serious and regular way. So they have this forecasting group and a strategy group that every year um, investigates potential black swan technologies and alternative energy technologies that could challenge their assumptions about their own 30-year uh, investment horizon and, and business model. And they commission a lot of scientists to do internal white papers about everything, ethanol, uh, solar, wind, even though those are power generation fuels and not directly threatening. They still keep track of everything that's going on on the edges of those technologies. And I think the, I think the, the technology that has produced the most anxiety during those ex exercises is batteries, battery storage capacity. I think the thing that they worry about most would be some transformation in the dynamics of uh, the cost manufacture and capacity of batteries over time. But they actually, they're interested in it because they think it could very rapidly change the transportation fuels economy on a global scale, but they're not convinced. They don't see it. So they're not afraid. They, they claim... Uh, that they're not anxious about it, just curious, very deeply interested. But my sense, my kind of experience of them was that they were, in fact, anxious about it. There was a company recently here in the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area, which announced a big breakthrough, just like you're, you're talking about. The question, of course, is whether that scales, will it pre prove commercially viable? But right. someone said that had an aha moment in, a, in the laboratory, at least. Uh, another aspect here, uh, we haven't been talking much about overseas. You talk about the independent sovereign. Um, how aligned was Iraq, uh, going into Iraq, was ExxonMobil with the Bush administration? Were they kind of, as many people believe, 
closely aligned with the invasion of Iraq, or do they hold back a little bit? I think uh, Raymond and Cheney really disagreed about the invasion of Iraq, actually, even in the context of their friendship and collaboration. Because, you know, from an oil company's perspective, what do you want the world to be? You want it to be stable, full of property rights, and open to oil and gas drilling. What you don't want is tumult uh, and war, uh, which disrupts oil and gas drilling. And the idea of making the world safe for democracy and human rights, which was you know, part of the rhetorical framework that the neoconservatives uh, brought forward uh, around the invasion of Iraq and other foreign policy after 9-11, that's completely anathema to the uh, major oil corporations that are working in countries like Equatorial Guinea and Chad, where it's really quite inconvenient to talk to their partner about uh, democracy and, and human rights. And they certainly don't want to be associated with an American agenda of that type. So um, they were... Uh, Lee Raymond was talked into going off the American Enterprise Board at a certain stage and, and turning down the chairmanship by his colleagues because they were all saying to him, hey, you know, these, these are the guys who are going out trying to essentially militarize uh, American democracy campaigning. That's the opposite of what we want. We want we're realists. We want uh, a stable world. Now, having said that, um, of course, once Iraq was invaded – and Saddam Hussein was overthrown, and the coalition provision, uh, provisional authority was established, and the Bush administration came in to remake the Iraqi oil industry, uh, ExxonMobil and all the others were right there to advise them that the best thing they could do would be to open their oil fields to Western oil corporations. Uh, that would get them out of this mess that the Bush administration had created for Iraq as fast as possible because only Western oil companies could deliver the levels of production increases and rehabilitation of uh, decaying fields and so forth. And so what's the outcome? I mean, I asked, a, I was talking to an Iraqi oil executive uh, or official about this at one point, and he said, you know, look, here's, this, here's the way our crowd, our Iraqi, sophisticated Iraqi energy crowd thinks of it. We understand that the war wasn't for oil. We also understand that it was likely that the outcome of the war would be that the Western companies would have access to oil. You know, the First World War wasn't a war for oil, but it ended up that the result of the war was the Western oil companies had Middle Eastern oil. That's what we expect here. And that was before the lease auctions that brought Exxon actually into West Kurna and into Iraqi fields where they have an equity position. They've also now gone up to uh, the Kurdish regional government and are drilling up, uh, have signed agreements up there, uh, despite the fact that both the Bush administration and the Obama administration have warned oil companies to stay out of the Kurdish areas because it threatens to exacerbate Iraq's disillusion. Steve Cole is author of Private Empire, Exxon Mobil, and American Power. He's our guest here today at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, as the oil companies look around internationally, a lot of the oil is increasingly either difficult to get or under the control of state-owned oil companies, not accessible to these companies, which brings us to natural gas, which is a, a fuel that's both cleaner in terms of greenhouse gases, and it's more uh, there's more of it in the United States. And it's uh, So let's talk about the gas dimension, which has been a big part of Rex Tillerson's leadership at ExxonMobil. Yes, yeah, you rightly point out, but I think it's worth emphasizing for a minute, the way the world looks to ExxonMobil is actually much more constrained and challenging than you might assume given their obvious size, influence, and the steadiness of their business model in the sense that they pump out 4.5 million barrels of oil equivalent oil and gas each year. That means they have to replace that amount. That's a lot. And as you say, the big pools of easy oil in the world in the Middle East are no longer available to corporations like ExxonMobil. They've all been nationalized through the spread of what sometimes is referred to as resource nationalism, the sense of pride in most post-colonial countries that oil, oil is a national resource, belongs to people it shouldn't be owned by foreign corporations. Now, the result of their being excluded from so much of the world's big supplies of oil is, as you say, that they're pushed into two different kinds of risk frontiers. One is geopolitical risk, because the places where you can buy oil and gas are generally weak states that are too weak to develop their own national oil companies. So they end up disproportionately in West Africa. I mean, when I was traveling in Chad on this book, I, I kept thinking to myself, why is Exxon here? I mean, poor benighted Chad, 181st out of 187 countries on the Human Development Index, life expectancy of less than 50 years, landlocked. Why would you be here? And the answer is because there just aren't that many places where they can own oil, and so they can't be choosy. So there's geopolitical risk. Then there's technological risk going into deeper water, into harsher climates where they can outbid 
state-owned oil companies that are not so efficient. And so they end up in this risk profile. And then, as you point out, the last option is to come back on shore and to shift towards natural gas. And that is, in fact, happening. The mix of ExxonMobil's portfolio of reserves has shifted gradually from being oil-dominated to being evenly split with a bias rising toward natural gas. And the principal reason is the development of new supplies onshore in the continental United States, so-called unconventional gas exploited by fracking techniques. And ExxonMobil was slow. All the big majors missed fracking. They all missed the unconventional gas story. But ExxonMobil has always been much better at buying opportunities than, than creating them. That's the advantage of their discipline. They've got this cash flow that nobody can match, and, and they're uh, one of the – they have a triple-A – credit rating today. The United States government does not. They're one of four corporations in the United States that has a triple A credit rating. Tillerson said that during the Lehman Brothers crisis, his main worry was putting his cash in a bank that wouldn't fail. Um, and so they used that cash to uh, to buy uh, the America's leading producer of unconventional gas, XTO, um, in 2010. So now the leading producer of natural gas in the continental United States is ExxonMobil. And there's one point where you talk about the public perception of the company where the gas stations are actually a liability and they, you think that they may be considered, uh, getting rid of the gas stations, uh, which are low profits, but they're high visibility and just getting into sort of a more upstream business. Yeah, it's, it's a funny thing. I mean, one of the things I tried to understand, um, as I gradually was able to see the world as ExxonMobil, uh, did through reporting, was what is it, what, do you, what is it like to be so unpopular? What is it like to be hated? Is it consequential? What do you do about it? What was their strategy? Uh, how did they discuss it amongst themselves? And one of the aspects of that um, arose at a board meeting in 2005 as Raymond was getting ready to retire, and he essentially said to the board, you know, the reason we're so unpopular is because every time Americans go to fill up their gas tank, they stand next to a sign that has our brand on it and a gasoline price that they can't control and are often quite angry about. Now, what other business in the world puts their customers directly into contact with their brand position at the moment of maximum pain in their customer experience? That's like a, that's an irrational business strategy. Now, it might be something we would have to endure if, in fact, selling gas with a big red and blue sign was the most profitable aspect of our business and something we just absolutely needed to keep doing for our shareholders. In fact, it's our lowest margin business. It's a terrible business in a lot of ways. It's filled with increasing environmental liability because of gasoline spills, legacy contamination sites, and we don't make much money in it. So why don't we just get out of this business and become like DuPont? Nobody thinks about DuPont. Uh, but they're a huge industrial corporation managing lots of risks every day. And, uh, you know, the board was sort of, well, that's not as crazy an idea as it sounds. Uh, and they have, in fact, been divesting from the retail uh, division. But I guess the problem is, and I haven't really reported this out, but I would assume that the problem is, for the benefit of shareholders, if you sell all these stations and all the signs, the value that you have to realize comes from actually selling the brand. So you can't just snuff the brand out because you don't like, the fact that there is such a name as Exxon and Mobil in the world. I mean, it, you have a fiduciary responsibility to realize value from that. So I guess that's what they've done. So anyway, they don't own as many stations, but the signs are still there with the prices on them. We are going to put an uh, audience microphone out here and invite your participation. Um, this is often an important part of the uh, event. If you're on this side, we invite you to please go around through that back door rather than crossing this camera. And the line will form with Jane Ann, our producer, right back there, who you saw earlier. Uh, and we welcome your one, one-part question or comment. If you need some help uh, keeping it brief, we'll help you out. Um, and while that is uh, getting together, I'd ask Steve uh, one more question. In this political season, gas prices have become a hot political issue. Uh, Mitt Romney recently in a, in a stump speech said that President Obama is for all of the forms of energy above ground, and he said, I'm for energy that's below ground, gas and, and coal and, and oil. So how is this playing out in terms of uh, the presidential uh, campaign? Is there really that much difference between Obama and Romney on energy? Some on, on regulatory sort of attitudes, but not much on kind of structural policy. Um, Seems like Obama wants on both fuels. sides. He's saying yeah. drill more, but he's uh, kind of uh, demonizing the oil companies with uh, you know, subsidies and windfall profits. 
Yeah, I mean, there's a lot. There's all of the campaigns, uh, the campaigns in both parties recognize that big oil companies are fundamentally unpopular. Uh, we live in an, an, an era of economic anxiety where um, Americans are especially suspicious of the power of large, unaccountable corporations in their lives for completely understandable reasons. And the oil companies, in the way we were discussing before, are especially visible. Oil price, gas prices have been rising, although recently they've uh, declined through this year. They, they were rising quite steeply. And many people are trapped in their relationship with gasoline. You know, it's imper- important to emphasize, if you flip on the power switch in the back of this room, you generate power, a corporation profits from that decision but it's a utility that's regulated around a notional public interest standard because there's a recognition that the provision of electricity is so essential, so pervasive, that there has to be a public uh, interest standard for regulating the profits and performance of the company that delivers it. Well, in the post-war world, our world today in the United States, gasoline is such a utility for many people. If you're a construction worker living in you know, the suburbs of Sacramento and you're driving to a job site uh, in Palo Alto every day, and if, in a pickup truck, you've got no choice but to go to the pump and fill up. And when the threat of war in Iran or Nigerian militancy jacks your price up by 15 percent, you don't have you don't have any accountability there. And the corporation that provides you that gasoline actually doesn't control that price in truth. But as we were talking about before, they're the visible deliverers of it, and they do make some money off of it. So no wonder Americans are angry at oil companies. Essentially, this is a public interest function, the provision of retail transportation fueling that is managed without reference to the public interest. It's a kind of historical accident. In most countries, the arrangements are actually different. Let's have our first audience question. Welcome to Climate One. Thank you. I have a question on, follow-up question on Exxon uh, position to the Iraq war. Uh, didn't the U.S. oil companies assume they'd have first right of refusal on oil contracts and partnerships? And what percentage of those contracts and partnerships went to U.S. companies and what percentage went to Chinese and Russian companies? Thank you. Uh, I think the companies basically wanted um, to do a few things after the invasion was finished. One was to develop their own independent contacts with Iraqi oil industry decision makers. So they developed these programs to bring Iraqi technocrats in the oil industry and decision makers and policymakers out to uh, the United States to have contact with the companies, to train them, to bring them up to speed about how the oil industry had changed since their school days because they'd been isolated in Iraq, sort of build networks of relationships that could allow them to have uh, a more successful position when bids were actually uh, brought out. And then they tried um, in various ways. There are different approaches, different individuals. But they they basically wanted um, to create conditions in which Iraq would make sustainable decisions of its own to invite international oil companies in, you know, because they knew that was the only way they were actually going to get something that would stick and get a contract under terms that they wanted. And they also wanted to persuade Iraq to create terms that would allow them to book the oil as owned for purposes of reporting to their shareholders in the Securities and Exchange Commission. And it's a long story. It's in the book. It's a riveting story in the book. You'll want to read it. Um, But uh, at the end of the day, they actually achieved many of their goals, is what I would say. Yes, sir. Welcome. You've said a great deal about how large Exxon is. I was wondering if Exxon is in a position to sustain that. How are their reserves relative to other companies in the industry? Yeah, and it's an interesting question because that's their greatest sort of anxiety is reserve replacement. Again, you know, four and a half million barrels a day times 365 days. So, you know, you're up at about a billion and a half a year. You've got to find and you've got to own it. That's a lot. That's a lot. And uh, they a have Conoco struggled. every year, right? Yeah, it's a Conoco every year. And they struggle mm-hmm. um, to uh, do it. And during some of the period that I uh, report on, they basically fudged their claim that they were replacing 100% of reserves by ignoring Securities and Exchange Commission rules about what could be counted. And they just basically went out with their own numbers and then in footnotes in SEC filings would say, oh, yeah, well, by the way, significant amount of this is not technically supposed to be counted according to the SEC, but we claim that it's a real reserve. And eventually they lobbied. In the last year, the Bush administration got the SEC to change the reporting rule. Now they, now they can claim 100% uh, recovery. But it's uh, it's not just their scale, although that's the, probably the biggest factor in a pure math sense, but it's also these constraints of being confined to either weak states, high-risk environments, or 
the geologically mature, at least until recently, you know, free market West where everybody has property rights and it's not so complicated if you can find it. Um, but uh, over time, uh, will they continue to replace reserves at 100% ratio year after year after year? I think that's a, a big question. Um, it will depend, uh, at least in the next 20 or 30 years, about how these unconventional oil and gas fines in the United States actually play out, which I think is a little more uncertain than the headlines sometimes suggest. Welcome to Climate One. Let's have our next question. Yeah. Um, so I was uh, recalling Jeremy Scahill's Blackwater during your Democracy Now! interview, and I was actually wondering, like, what role do uh, the rise of corporate mercenary forces play in the 30-year strategy of ExxonMobil? Basically, like, do they have one? Do they have mercenary forces? I think that that would be a really important element of your thesis, uh, framing ExxonMobil as a sovereign state. Yeah, and there are um, episodes that I go into in the book um, that I found fascinating where um, this broad subject comes into play. In general, resource extraction corporations, and in particular ExxonMobil, deal with security in hostile environments where they're producing oil and gas by arranging for the host government's military or paramilitary police to provide a security around their oil and gas fields. Typically, this is built into their contract. They pay the salaries of the local uh, soldiers. When I traveled in the Delta in Nigeria, I went with a local politician, Nigerian politician, to avoid being kidnapped, figuring I could fly under his colors. And he had uh, he was going down to visit his constituents in the area where ExxonMobil worked in Akwaibom State, and he had one gunman uh, to keep him safe. And... Uh, it wasn't really much of a show of force, but it made, us, it made him feel better. And the, and the guy was a Nigerian uh, paramilitary policeman, and he had a uniform that had the mobile Pegasus on it. <laughs> it was literally, that was his, that was his, uh, his, in, his patch. And uh, so we were literally with the mobile police. Now, in Indonesia, they paid some notorious uh, units of the TNI, the Indonesian military, to defend a disputed gas field in the province of Aceh. Uh, there are credible documented cases of human rights violations by those forces. They were also on ExxonMobil's payroll. There's civil litigation still going on in the American court system about ExxonMobil's potential responsibility for the act- activities of those forces. Um, and, you know, there's a, it's a very important part of the story that I tried to document in real detail, both in uh, Indonesia and in Africa. Steve Cole is author of Private Empire, ExxonMobil, and American Powers, our guest today at Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. Let's have our next question, please. Hello, my name is Tor Hansen, and I am Norwegian, and I'm surprised and pleased to know that we are as big as Exxon. <laughs> <laughs> um, my question, it's a little Thanks bit... Thanks to oil in part. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this is a, a question to a somewhat expanded topic, because I know there is obviously the context of climate we're talking about here. But I'm sure your book also talks, you know, about the corporate power and how it relates to the U.S. political system. My real question is how close in did your research bring you to the, to understanding their real influence on American politics and how close does that bring our political system in the United States towards a system that starts to walk and talk like a fascist system? Um, well, I don't know. A reporter never really knows how far you get. You just get further than you were the day before. And I did have a series of questions that I wanted to try to answer about their Washington operation and their political action committee strategy and their spending patterns. And I did a lot of crunching of data and comparative analysis. I found some things um, that I felt confident about. One was that uh, ExxonMobil's political action committee spending among large American corporations that are politically active uh, was unusually aligned with the Republican Party. Ninety percent of their political action committee spending in the 2010 cycle was uh, to the Republican to Republican candidates and even higher percentage in 2012. Chevron is also biased toward the Republican Party, uh, but gives to Democrats at twice the rate ExxonMobil does. And it was interesting, many large corporations that are politically active and that you might think would have a similar alignment with the Republican Party around regulatory or free market issues, Dow Chemical and Walmart, many of the rest split their money pretty evenly between the parties. And so I think what it illustrates is that ExxonMobil really has not 
developed an ecumenical uh, political strategy in the United States. Uh, and despite the enormous diversity of their own shareholding base and their own employee base and the challenge of maintaining a scientific and technological edge in this age when, for example, you know, women are better educated uh, than men increasingly and will be for the next 20 or 30 years, if you want great scientists, you better build a workplace where women feel comfortable I don't think ExxonMobil has such a workplace myself uh, from everything I heard about it, um, and in broad strokes. Um, and so uh, that was one finding. The other finding was, well, how do they actually lobby in Washington, in the Congress and in the executive branch? And they're very uh, consistent in the way they approach things. They have a manual, tells them exactly what their views are. They print up PowerPoint slides, and they will brief those slides to anybody who asks and if you say, well, what if we did this? They say, I'm sorry, this is our position. And they're very fixed into it. And what they're effective at mostly, uh, besides capture of regulatory agencies, uh, such as the Interior Department before Deepwater Horizon, um, is blocking things in Congress. You know, that's their main strategy, is to prevent bad things from happening to them. They want to outlast uh, governments in Washington as much as anything else, because they've got 30 or 40 year time horizons for many of their investments. And these presidents, members of Congress, you know, they come and go uh, just like, you know, coup-ridden governments in, in West Africa. Let's take our next audience question. Yes, sir, welcome. Uh, in recent uh, days, Apple Computer has been in the news about uh, sheltering profits and avoiding taxes and other tech companies also. I wonder how uh, – can you comment on ExxonMobil and perhaps all of Big Oil? as to how effective they are at doing that? Yeah, I, um, their reported effective rates of U.S. taxation are on the relatively high side of, of um, American, large American corporations that practice tax management strategies, I guess they would call them, tax avoidance, probably the rest of us would call them. Um, you know, what this idea of uh, repatriating and managing profits offshore is a – is a universal corporate practice among global corporations. It would almost be malpractice if your accountants didn't at least uh, advise you about s- some of the ways you can keep money away from from American um, from the highest rates of taxation. My impression, reading that very good reporting about Apple, I think it was in the Times, wasn't it? Um, is that actually the that particular story was a more aggressive um, v- version of this common corporate practice and yielded a lower lower effective tax rate for Apple than you would see generally in the oil industry. I mean, I haven't looked at Conoco and Chevron, but I'd, I'd have looked at ExxonMobil, whose effective U.S. tax rate is, as I say, is a little bit on the high side of the corporations that report such things. You know who's the lowest is General Electric. That's been reported, too. Let's have our next question, please. Hi, thank you. Um, you mentioned Greenpeace and the Union of Concerned Scientists exerting pressure on Exxon. How effective do you think these broad-based stakeholder campaigns are on actually shifting corporate behavior? I think they're effective. I think they're, I think it's sort of part of the narrative tension was two very effective uh, opponents going at it over something they really cared about. And, and Greenpeace in particular was interesting because like uh, ExxonMobil, you know, they are uncompromising, they are determined, they're well organized, uh, and they, they go at it. You know, they're not looking to be popular. They're looking to be effective. And, uh, they, they and ExxonMobil were, very, I thought, very well matched in a way. And I would say, you know, at, at a tactical uh, public relations, public narrative level that Greenpeace won that, by 2005 they had so tied ExxonMobil to its, in fact, <laughs> rather radical decisions to fund uh, anti-science uh, groups and campaigning campaigns. Uh, but they'd also uh, learned something about ExxonMobil. In 2003, they staged this great theatrical strike at ExxonMobil's headquarters in Irving where they dressed up in tiger costumes and they scaled the fence and other people dressed up in business suits with briefcases and drove in in Ferraris. And then they occupied the roof of the headquarters and they unfurled banners saying global warming crime scene and the tigers ran around in the offices trying to educate the executives. And, and one guard fell down and hurt himself, like cut his hand a little bit or something. And so ExxonMobil went after them with the Dallas prosecutor aligned with their um, outrage, and they got a huge restraining order on Greenpeace, basically committing them not to commit any misdemeanors for the next 10 years at some enormous cost. And then a couple of years after that, um, 
at the headquarters in Washington, uh, the Internal Revenue Service turns up and begins this massive, extensive audit of Greenpeace on the grounds that it might be violating its um, obligations under 501c3 uh, as a charitable organization not to engage in certain kinds of political activity. And it turned out that the impetus for this audit was influenced by a, a new nonprofit that had sprung up after this raid on ExxonMobil called Public Interest Watch, which was an organization that raised questions about groups that seemed to be organized for charitable purposes but also seemed to engage in political activity. And then eventually someone dug out Public Interest Watch's tax filing, and it showed that 100% of their income came from ExxonMobil. <laughs> so, you know, they, these were two hardball players. Uh, now, you'd say that, that Greenpeace kind of got the better side of the public narrative arguments, except, as we were talking about before, where did public opinion about climate science end up and what happened to carbon pricing in the United States? So on the big picture, who, who, really, who really achieved their objectives? But during that time, ExxonMobil profits continued to go up. Did they really pay a financial cost for that misinformation campaign? I mean, maybe a PR hit, but... Right, so it's, it's an interesting question because it goes to this basic uh, thing that I kept trying to understand. Does it really matter that they're hated from their perspective? And what's their attitude about it? And their view tends to be, no, it doesn't really matter. Um, we're just going to be who we are. The we're profits not going to be, keep coming. Profits keep coming. But... I would argue that there are at least two ways in which it is material to them in a business sense, never mind uh, the possibility that leaders of a corporation owned by firefighter pensions and millions of ordinary Americans through mutual funds and with 80,000 employees around the world and as an environmental steward in many communities of the United States, the possibility that they might decide to define their mission you know, in a broad way, broader than they do. All right, let's set that aside. Is there really any business reason why they should care? I think there are two. One, they lose an awful lot of jury verdicts. They basically cannot go to a jury trial without knowing they're going to get a billion-dollar judgment against them. Now, they often win on appeal, and they always appeal, and they're very good at litigating. But over time, do you really want to go to every jury trial in the United States knowing that you're, like, in a deep hole? That limits your options. And then the second piece of it is talent retention and retaining scientific and technological excellence. That is fundamental to their business. They have got to compete more and more with Chinese companies that are going to get better and better, that are going to be very well resourced, um, and they have to deliver on their claim that they uniquely have scientific and technological edge. Well, how are they going to do that if they don't have a, a culture in which when a scientist, a great geologist, goes home for Thanksgiving dinner and says... I work at ExxonMobil, you know, their cousins all, you work at ExxonMobil. What happens if you go home and say, I work at Apple? Everyone says, oh, I want an iPod, I want an iPod. And so, you know, over time, I mean, this kind of strategic position in the, in the public space, I think for corporations that matter as much as our corporations now do, the weight they have in our society, I think over time you, you're gonna, you have to do something about that. Let's have our last audience question. Yes, sir. You've described um, Exxon's effect on United States democracy and also its militarization of uh, or increasing militarization in places such as Nigeria. Could you also comment on other global north states, how ExxonMobil's lobbying has affected, say, the BRICS or EU states? They are very active in Europe. I mean, the, the main thing that, that from a broad perspective, I guess I'll just answer it with one uh, story that's in the book about um, something that I didn't know anything about until I started looking at all their lobbying records and trying to understand what they cared about by um, sort of indexing and analyzing their disclosures. And I saw that they were spending a lot of time on phthalates. How many of you know what phthalates are? Anyway, they're a chemical that that is uh, pervasive in plastic. It's a softening chemical, basically, in rubber uh, toys. If you take out your iPod ear, earbuds, there's phthalates in those. And... and uh, in Europe, uh, which is governed to a greater extent than the United States by the instincts of the precautionary principle, which basically holds that if evidence emerges from science of potentially catastrophic risk to humans in any system, product, or environmental um, setting, that it's generally wiser to be cautious uh, and, and to intervene early 
and then to allow the science to catch up rather than uh, create harm uh, that you only discover after you've allowed these products forward. And California is the basically the bridge from Europe where precautionary principle regulatory regimes enter the United States, usually at the state level, and then they spread to Vermont or maybe Minnesota, and eventually there's enough state laws that are based on these European uh, frameworks that allow somebody in Congress to, to try to nationalize this proposal. So one of ExxonMobil's concerns about the EU is basically to contain the precautionary principle and to prevent it from becoming the basis for uh, regulatory approaches in the United States. They advocate uh, and spend a good deal of time investing in at universities and uh, you know, p- different risk management centers. They, they advocate a more of a cost-benefits basis to evaluating uh, risk in these settings. And so that's one example among several I could give. Before we wrap up, let's look ahead. We've been looking a lot toward the past 20 years. Uh, in this election cycle, we have uh, perhaps a President Romney. Some people have suggested that he may have a Nixon to China opportunity to do more on climate than perhaps a second-term President Obama, or perhaps Barack Obama, who you and your wife knew a little bit in college, uh, takes aggressive action in a second term on climate. Well, who's in the Congress? I mean, I don't see where you get uh, filibuster-proof majority in the Senate based on where the Senate races look like they're going. And I don't see the House changing hands myself. I mean, um, it would be hard to imagine how you could rebuild the political coalition. Remember, you know, in 2009, but for the crisis, but for the Lehman Brothers, but for the recession, um, some sort of cap-and-trade bill almost certainly would have passed because – um, you know, Lindsey Graham and um, some other elements of the Republicans in the Senate had already basically decided to get that 60th vote organized. And this had been building. And there were a lot of corporations that had joined in this effort. And there were a lot of compromises that were being made. But at the end of the day, the crisis in the employment, um, it, crisis of jobs in the United States was so great that all sorts of fence-sitting politicians who had earlier thought they could bear uh, defending a decision to impose short-term costs on the economy for long-term gains in um, preventing warming changed their minds. And so I think that moment was lost, and I don't think it's likely to be restored by this election. I, I think it's probably another, you know, four or, or six years before those politics return to Washington. And we need to end it there. Our thanks to Steve Cole, author of Private Empire, ExxonMobil, and American Power. I'm Greg Dalton. Thank you all for coming, and thank you for listening to Climate One.